0: So there is this company called Mallinckrodt, and you might never have heard of them, but they are a major part of the story of the opioid epidemic. As the country was being flooded by 100 billion opioid pills, the largest share of those were made by this company. And part of how they did that was encouraging the sale of their pain pills, in part with promotional songs like this one.
1: You got out the proper door,
2: The top. you can start with very little, but that's not where you should
0: stop This song is called Proper Dose, and it was actually commissioned by Mallinckrodt. So the lyrics here, just in case you can't hear them, are, you can start at the middle, you can start at the top, you can start with very little, but that's not where you should stop. So basically they're encouraging people to write prescriptions for opioids and not to hesitate to increase the dosage.
3: But if you don't follow up the pain
0: This song is just one example in a trove of newly obtained internal records from Mallinckrodt. These records were released this week as part of a legal settlement and as part of the larger fight over who is accountable for the opioid epidemic. According to federal data released today, more than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021, higher than any previous year. And when it comes to the origins of the opioid epidemic in the U.S., Mallinckrodt doesn't have the same name recognition as Purdue or the Sackler family, but it probably should.
4: When you look at the numbers, Mallinckrodt produced way more opioids than other companies that have become household names, such as Purdue Pharma. We did an analysis based on internal DEA data, and we found that Mallinckrodt accounted for 27 percent of the opioid market compared to 18% for Purdue Pharma.
5: For the first time, all of the internal documents of the largest opioid manufacturer in the country is coming out, and we're learning more about the inner workings of the company. That's Scott Hyam and Merrill Cornfield, They're reporters for The Post. Especially the sales force and how they recruited doctors to push more opioids into the market.
4: This company relied upon a sales force that consisted of more than 200 sales reps who would go around the country and target top prescribers, doctors who were known to write prescriptions for opioids. And they wanted to get these doctors to write prescriptions for their own opioid products, Mallinckrodt's products. And we found that more than a quarter of those doctors had been convicted of crimes, lost their medical license practices, or they were charged in civil cases where they had to pay fines, either federal or a state fines, to settle those cases.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 11th. Today, we're digging into the new revelations about Mallinckrodt and the doctors they courted to sell their opioids. So, Scott, I know that you have been covering opioids for The Post for many years now. And in 2019, The Post published this massive investigation called The Opioid Files. First, can you just talk a little bit about that project And what it was, what it revealed, and how this new reporting starts to build on that.
4: So in 2019, the Washington Post filed a motion to get access to a cache of documents and data that was part of a national lawsuit that had been filed against these opioid companies. There's about two dozen opioid companies that are being sued by nearly 4,000 cities and towns and municipalities for causing the opioid epidemic and ravaging these communities. We found that 100 billion pain pills had been manufactured, distributed, and dispensed in the United States during the height of the epidemic in the 2000s and mid-2000s. The other thing that we saw were all these internal documents from all these companies about what they knew, when they knew it, what was happening to their pills, what they did, what they didn't do. So what we had were just kind of snapshots from many of the companies. But we didn't have the entire trove from any individual company. So what we have now is the entire internal file from one manufacturer, which was the largest manufacturer of oxycodone in America.
0: So this company, Malincrot Pharmaceuticals, I mean, can you tell me a little bit more about the background of this company?
4: This is the largest drug company in America that most people have never heard of. Most people think of Purdue Pharma when they think of the opioid epidemic, but they would be wrong to think that Purdue Pharma was the company that really fueled the opioid epidemic. So Malloncraft started in the 1800s. It was a chemical supply company originally, and then they got into the opioid trade business a long time ago, one of the first in the country. And they've been manufacturing opioids since the early 1900s. When
1: I started out in 1972, there were three opium processors in the country, Merck and Penick, which are both located in, uh, in New Jersey, and Mallinckrodt in St. Louis.
4: Jim Geldoff is a veteran DEA agent and investigator and supervisor who uh, was in charge of uh, the Detroit Field Division, so his territory was mostly the Midwest. Mallinckrodt, for many, many years, if you talk to DEA agents and investigators and supervisors, all felt like the company was one that they trusted.
1: I mean, they enjoyed a high level of trust with DEA because of what service they performed for the country, providing the legitimate medicine that really this country needed.
4: That trust started to erode in the mid-2000s with the opioid epidemic.
1: And what had happened, Purdue had these issues with the executives getting indicted in 2008.
4: And the FDA and the federal government started cracking down on Purdue Pharma. And Malincrot, according to the DEA, started to flood the market with its own generic versions of oxycodone. They had an M on their pill on one side, and their most popular pill was a 30 milligram oxycodone tablet.
1: Basically, Purdue established the market and then when, when that started uh, waning, the 30s took off and, and uh, Malincrot jumped in it with both feet.
4: Hundreds of millions of these pills were sent down to Florida through drug distributors that worked with Mallinckrodt. And they were being prescribed by corrupt doctors in South Florida and pill mills. And people were transporting them back up to Appalachia, the Midwest. And they became the most popular drug in America for people who were abusing Oxycodone.
1: People be asking for blues or M's. It was the Cadillac of street pills.
5: The DEA had begun investigating Malincrod around 2010 as they saw a high volume of opioids flooding Florida.
1: In their heyday, about 50 percent of all the Oxy30s they manufactured went to Florida and the other 50 percent went to the rest of the United States.
4: When they started looking at the raw numbers, they were just stunned by the volume. The DEA, after seeing all the numbers and seeing all the overdoses and seeing all the drugs that were being poured out of that company onto the street, they started serving subpoenas on the company. They started getting emails. They started getting invoices and order forms. And the more they dug, the more they realized that This was the worst drug company that the American people had never heard of.
5: They told Mallinckrodt, according to the company's own internal documents, you are the kingpin within the drug cartel. Wow. After the break, we dig deeper
0: into the inner workings of Mallinckrodt's sales machine. We'll be right back.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn.
0: So, Meryl and Scott, I want to ask you more about this opioid manufacturer, Mallinckrodt, because at the time, I mean, what they were doing, the fact that they were producing these pills that were painkillers, that were prescribed by doctors, I mean, that was legal, right? They weren't illegal pills. So what was the wrongdoing here on the part of the pharmaceutical companies? Like, why is Mallinckrodt being held responsible for the way that people ended up using their pills?
4: Because it was the sheer volume of pills. So there was no legitimate medical purpose for a pharmacy, for instance, for one month is getting 10,000 pills and next month they're getting 40,000 pills. Why is that? I
1: mean, they knew exactly what was going on.
0: This, again, is Jim Geldof from the Drug Enforcement Administration or the DEA.
4: There's no way in the world the pattern that was there could have been anything other than illicit. Under the law, they're supposed to look at that and say, wait a minute, this is suspicious, this is not right, something's wrong here. Why are all these pills now going to this pharmacy? Why is this one drug distributor that is working with Mallinckrodt one month getting a million pills and the next month they're getting five million pills?
0: But the manufacturer that Mallinckrodt is supposed to be the one who's stepping in and saying, we shouldn't be giving you all these pills.
4: Right. All along the line, there are supposed to be checks and balances, and those checks and balances basically went out the window all down the line.
5: The company said, we're filling these legitimate scripts that prescribers are writing for patients. This is a legal action because we're doing what uh, is within the law. But what we learned in these documents is how much the company was involved in actually getting the doctors to write more. They had this branded sales force that was spending time in the doctor's offices, bringing lunch, recruiting doctors for paid speaking engagements. And so let's talk a little bit more about that. Like,
0: what was the role that doctors played in all of this? And what more have you learned about the role of doctors from these new documents?
5: The sales force had identified their top prescribers, the doctors that were writing the most prescriptions for opioids, and they felt like would be willing to write more prescriptions. So they would reach out to these doctors, frequently visiting their office, bringing food, offering paid speaking programs. And as part of that, they got close with the doctors. The sales reps would email exchanges about, you know, what they were like. And we see how they thought about these doctors and especially how they thought about these doctors when the doctors got in trouble, which happened with a number of their top prescribers. And their concern was that they were going to lose these sales and how could they make up for the lack of sales. So for instance, one doctor we looked at had already left for Pakistan when he was indicted on federal drug conspiracy and money laundering charges. Another doctor has been barred from practicing medicine after several of his patients died from drug overdoses. One doctor was arrested at the airport with a ticket to go out of the country and sent to prison for drug prescribing charges.
0: And so what you're saying is that these kinds of circumstances were relatively common, that among the doctors who were working closely with Mellencrod and prescribing so many of these pills that oftentimes they ended up being in trouble with the law.
4: They repeatedly would get reports back. I mean, like we said, more than 25% of these doctors wound up in trouble with the law or with medical boards and with the state and federal authorities. You know, instead of saying, wow, I guess we should have been more careful about that doctor or we should be more vigilant the next time about the doctors that we choose to target They just lamented the loss of them by saying in emails, oh, crap, or oh, well, or, you know, I just lost my number one doctor. You know, what am I going to do now because I've lost all these sales? And so, so much of it was sales driven. They weren't really thinking about the doctors overprescribing and what those consequences were for people in the community who were overdosing on these drugs.
0: Have you gotten comment from any of these doctors or heard from them about their perspective on this?
4: We reached out to all the doctors that we cited in our report, and a few did get back to us. They basically said that they were responsible prescribers and that they were wrongly accused by the authorities. We talked to one doctor who is serving an eight-year prison term, and his name is Fathala Mashali, And he really felt like he was unfairly singled out by the authorities, that he was just doing his job. He was trying to help his pain patients and felt that the executives from Mallinckrodt should be the ones who are sitting in prison and the executives from Purdue Pharma and the other companies should be sitting in prison.
5: There was another doctor who echoed those claims.
2: My name's Judson Somerville. I had practiced pain management 23 years in Laredo, Texas.
5: Judson Somerville is one of the 65 doctors we're looking at. Somerville was accused by the medical board of overprescribing opioids to more than a dozen of his patients. Somerville told us that after he lost his license because three of his patients overdosed, that he did not believe that they died from drug overdoses, that they had other medical history, and he felt like his patients needed their opioids because of their chronic pain issues. There's a lot
2: of desperate people out there um, that have had surgery, um, particularly back surgery, that's failed and they're suffering. And my job as a doctor is, is if, you know, how to put it? Yes, they're at high, they're higher risk patients, but does that mean I just don't treat them and I just let them suffer?
0: Do you buy that? I mean, do you do you buy the argument that for some of these doctors there was a sense that I have patients in pain, I want to help them manage their pain, painkillers are a part of healthcare and that they felt like they were looking out for their patients?
5: There are certain parameters doctors need to follow when they're giving out these potentially dangerous drugs. They need to conduct, for example, drug urine tests to make sure that the patients are actually taking the drugs they're prescribed and not other drugs. They need to check to make sure that the patient isn't saying, I lost my prescription and again and again. Some of these doctors we've found have not done that. For instance, Judson-Somerville his patients, the medical board found, had failed drug urine tests or they had drugs in their system that they weren't prescribed or they didn't have the drugs in their system that they were prescribed. And that raises a red flag to any responsible prescriber.
2: I'm, I'm not sure which patient you're referring to in particular. Um, do you remember which patient?
5: For all, all three of the patients who died, there were issues with their um, drug screens. There was the 42 year old patient who was positive for cocaine um, and negative for the prescribed medications. There was a 49 year old patient.
2: Okay, okay, the first patient, let's go one by one. That was the f- very first time he ever showed up in my clinic. So he wasn't on pain medications at the time. And uh, I, I, I made a, uh, and he had failed back surgery. So he certainly had pain. He was trying to self medicate. And I told him, you know, stopped stop the cocaine, and he never had an a, a abnormal drug screen again. It was always positive for the medications and negative for any controlled or any illicit drugs.
5: The, scru- the findings, though, say that it wasn't positive for the prescribed medications. It was negative twice, in May and July, and you had been treating him since January.
2: Yeah, I, I don't remember specifically, but... Uh, um, yeah, from my remembrance, he, he was taking the medications that he was supposed to. So, uh, yeah.
0: What was it like for the DEA trying to go after these doctors?
4: So when DEA supervisors like Jim Geldoff talk about going after doctors, they say it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You
1: could sit there and make one doctor case after another. You'd be doing that till the cows come home. It was just, it, it had gotten so out of control
4: particularly at the height of the opioid epidemic. Every time you arrest a doctor, another one's going to pop up and take that doctor's place. They'll also tell you that making a case against a doctor is very difficult.
1: When we were doing criminal cases on doctors, uh, pharmacists, if you initiated a case, soup to nuts, you're looking at a year to a year and a half uh, for an indictment or a complaint. Those are very difficult cases.
4: You have to do undercover operations. You have to send in... Agents posing as patients have that doctor then say, oh, well, I don't really need to get an MRI or I don't need to do an X-ray. Here is a prescription for oxycodone. And you have to do that multiple times to establish case against one doctor.
1: So we're talking about cases that take a fairly lengthy amount of time and, and can be manpower intensive, especially when you're working cases out of a small office.
0: So what has Mallinckrodt said about all of your reporting on this and about the the documents that are now public from inside the company.
5: Yeah, Malincrod ended up saying that they disagree with the allegations, but they said that they're moving forward with this $1.7 billion settlement and are doing what they can to put money back into these communities to abate the crisis.
6: Well, I think that all along, this has been about achieving justice for the families who've demanded action in the face of devastating loss. And for the first time in a long time, industry secrets are going to be turned over to the public.
5: Maura Healy is the Massachusetts Attorney General who has led the effort for the disclosure of this document. And she talked to us about the important role that the company played.
6: Mallinckrodt played a major role in the opioid crisis from 2009 to 2021. More than 18,000 people in Massachusetts died from opioid-related overdoses, and the prescription records show that this company, Mallinckrodt, supplied opioids to more than half of them. I meet with so many parents who've been impacted by this epidemic, people who've lost children, people who are raising grandchildren, and they have struggled with so much heartache and frustration. And these families deserve answers. They deserve accountability. And now the families who suffered in this crisis will be able to see for themselves, hopefully, all that we uncovered, the company emails, the board minutes, the business plans that changed so many lives and ruined so many families and communities.
7: The documents are a blessing and a curse at the same time for us. I believe it's a blessing in which the world can really see how this epidemic came to be. It's a curse because our kids were the result of that greed and deception.
5: Cheryl Jouer is a Massachusetts mother of three sons. Two of her sons passed away from overdoses. She just has one son left.
7: When you read these documents about how, you know, they they laughed while our kids were dying is really hard for a parent to read, we blamed ourselves for the longest, longest time. And now now we've got the truth. And so it's really important that this truth be told.
4: People like, uh, like Cheryl and other moms and dads and brothers and sisters and people who have lost loved ones to the opioid epidemic will tell you that, yes, these disclosures of documents are important and the fines uh, are important. The settlements are important because they are gonna go back into the community, This money to help people who are, are addicted to drugs and help these communities get back on their feet. But they will also tell you that that they are upset that nobody has gone to jail.
7: We've learned who that our kids were the victims and the drug dealers really, most of them came in lab coats.
4: This is like a, a bittersweet victory, and it rings hollow for a lot of the families because their loved ones are never coming back, obviously, and nobody is really truly being held accountable for these deaths.
7: No amount of money is enough that it's not enough. Um, but we'll take it and we'll use it for the best that we can to to continue to start saving lives.
0: Scott Haim is an investigative reporter for The Post. Merrill Cornfield is a general assignment reporter. This story was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon. To learn more about the cache of 1.4 million newly released records, look for the link in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.